You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we, just saying it, we need you um, every hour. We need you this hour as we seek to understand you according to what you have said about yourself as we seek to understand what it means to be a living sacrifice, what it means to worship you well, what it means to resist conformity to this world, what it means to be transformed and have your mind is what Paul just said. Uh, this, is, uh, this is such a rich uh, text. We ask you would help us understand it. We ask you would make us like Jesus as a result of hearing from your word today. We ask that you would sanctify us, you would be glorified, and that we would leave here filled with the joy that you have purchased us, Jesus, on the cross. We love you. We worship you. It's in Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. You may be seated for... Nathan uh, was right last week when he said that uh, it's, there's so much in Romans, there's so much in these texts that I could have preached for four weeks on the couple of verses that you just heard. It is just jam-packed. I encourage you, go and sit and meditate on these scriptures. Go sit and read what it means to be transformed. Um, and we're going to get into it a little bit this evening, but man... I hope it's not an hour. We need him every hour. I hope this doesn't last an hour because there's a lot to say on, on wonderful verses like this. My name's Kyle. Good afternoon and welcome. If you're visiting, I'm so thankful that you're here. This is not where we normally gather. It took, it took a lot for you to get here. You had to get on the website. You had to talk to somebody, figure out where we're meeting. I'm so thankful that you're visiting with us. And uh, if, you're, if you're curious on how we normally do a Sunday, we normally just pick a book of the Bible. We preach through it, try to be faithful to it. And then we pick another book of the Bible and do the same. Uh, we just finished up Joshua. We're right in the middle of of Luke. Uh, we took the summer to study Joshua, and so if you're, if you're here next week, you're going to hear one more one-off sermon, and then the week after that, we're going to jump back into Luke. Uh, but this week, uh, we're kind of in the second part of a series on thinking through commitment, thinking through what does it mean to be a committed person in a world that won't commit to anything, really. Last week, Nathan preached on God's commitment to us. Uh, if you weren't here for that sermon, I encourage you, you need to. You need to go back and listen to it this week because my sermon today only makes sense in light of God's eternal commitment to his people through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's his sovereign eternal commitment to his people that keeps us and holds us fast like we sing so often. Nathan stated last week that his main takeaway for us uh, from his sermon was that God is more committed to your salvation, to your joy, uh, to your holiness, anything good. Put it anything good, anything eternal in that sentence. He is more committed to that in your life than you are. We serve a wonderful God, an incredible God. Without his love, without his intentionality, we would not know him. We would not love him, much less commit our lives to him. And before we can even begin to think about a committed, self-sacrificed life as a Christian, we must behold and stand in awe of the committed, self-sacrificed 
God of the universe. So go back, listen, take some time to ponder God's goodness to you and giving you himself, because that's the reality if you are a follower of Jesus, the God of the universe has given you himself. So in preparation for this sermon today, that's just kind of some follow-up, I sat for a moment and considered, what is it that I'm committed to? Like what This word, we're talking about commitment, talking about God's commitment to us, today I'm going to be talking about our commitment to God. What in my life am I committed to? Most of my commitments, apart from my wife, uh, my family, even this church body, my role here, most of my commitments are cancelable with a click, right? I, I canceled on a few of you actually in this room this week as I prepared the sermon. I said, hey, I need to sit, I need to pray, I need to think, uh, I'm not going to be able to meet this week. And you were fine with that. Like we, whether it's Netflix, whether it's our phone services, our insurance companies, most of our commitments can be canceled in an instance and both parties are okay with that. We actually write that into our contracts. It makes us more comfortable. Uh, but those are small commitments. Increasingly, the larger commitments that have been uh, held in our culture, I'll just talk about our culture. I don't know much about other cultures, but in our culture, things like marriage, things like jobs that we used to commit to for 30 years, things like church membership and participation, those things that used to be considered more long-term, lifelong, are also being viewed as cancel-anytime type commitments. So do you know what the number one stated reason uh, given for divorce today is? So I don't know if this is a credible source. I think it is. National Library of Medicine. That sounded important. Um, I think it's good. But the number one stated reason for divorce is lack of commitment from one or the other or both of people. 75% of ended marriages cite a lack of commitment as a major reason for the decision to end their covenant. Nathan touched on lack of commitment going into our uh, culture, and uh, last week he, he brought up a little bit FOMO, FOBO, fear of missing out, fear of a better offer, and I think that the world, in its broken state, is onto something. Okay, so we didn't, the church didn't create those hashtags, right? The, the world created those hashtags, and we normally focus mostly on the missing out, or the better offer, or the better option, but I think the more important part is fear, the fear of, right? Fear drives us. You want to know what you worship? Look at what you're afraid of not having. Look at what you're afraid of happening, right? Look at what you fear. This is why scripture is constantly calling us to fear and revere God and God alone. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, wisdom exactly. If we get our fear in order, our commitments will inevitably follow. Said it in a positive way, what, what you fear, what you worship, reflects and reveals what you love. And what you love indicates what you will be committed to or who you will be committed to. So our text this evening indicates that self-sacrificial worship of God will lead to a transformed mind that discerns the will of God. It's an incredible statement. Like, man, have you ever asked yourself, what's the will of God for my life? I'm like, I'm not so bold to say, just stick around. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you with that. Like, <laughs> but there's something here for you. There's something here in this text in discerning what God's mind is, um, discerning what his will is that so many of our hearts are constantly looking for. Discerning the will of God is not a passive thing. Okay, so we just kind of want it to just pop into our brain. God, what job should I choose? God, what person should I marry? God, what place should I go to? What car should I drive? Whatever the, the will is, what sin should I put to death? Whatever it is, we just want it to pop into our heads, but it comes through laying down our lives as living, breathing, walking, thinking, worshiping, fearing, sacrifices. That's what Paul teaches us in the word of God. The question of the night is, how do we commit to a God 
who has already done all the work. That's what we talked about last week. We're freed up. He's finished it all. Who has, he's secured both sides of the covenant through the blood of his son. How do we commit to a God like that? Unlike Netflix, your covenant with God cannot be canceled. Amen. You are his and he has done an irrevocable work on your behalf. If you are a follower of Jesus, he created it, he keeps it, and he promises that nothing can snatch you out of his hand. This is what Paul says in another place in Romans, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's incredible, wonderful, remarkable truth. Our blood is not needed. Christ's blood has been spilled on our behalf. Our work is not needed because with his last breath, Jesus proclaimed that it is finished. It's baffling, right? Commitment to God is similar, so, so don't give me, don't, don't take this too far, but it's like buying a gift for a person who has everything. Anyone have a friend like that? Like you're trying to, like a, maybe it's a, a family member or somebody that they're like, oh, I really want a something, something, something. And they're like, I got an idea, and then the next day you see them holding it because Amazon is close to us now, and they can order it, and it's here right away. They just, they have everything. It's impossible to buy a gift. What do you do? What do you get a person who owns everything? The only thing you can give a person like that is the gift of knowing them, the gift of loving them, pursuing them, understanding them. It's your intimate knowledge and intentional pursuit of a person like that that makes a gift special. Like just, just like when a, a child brings a painting that they made to a parent. They don't have money. They don't have anything to offer to their parent. But they love them. They thought of them. They pursue. And like that's the best gift a mom and dad can receive is a painting or a tie or whatever you're getting on Father's Day these days. He has done the work. He holds us fast. And we respond by laying our lives down that the life of Christ might be resurrected in its place, and our joy may be made full. What does God desire? What can we offer him? What gift can we give to a God that owns the world? He's been saying it since the beginning. Adam and Eve, love me, obey me, don't eat from that tree, enjoy, fill the earth, multiply. All these commands which are under him in his presence and are good for our people. Give me, he says it in the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He sent his son he purchased you. He loves you. He desires to know you. He wants you. He, he's devoted to you. He is working for your good, and he knows that the only way for joy to take root in your life is to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he deserves the worship and glory that that brings. What else is there to do? What else do we have to offer him but our hearts and our souls, our lives as a living sacrifice, taking on the mind of God that we can know what is good and acceptable and perfect to him, and live in light of those things. Okay, and that's what our verse is talking about this evening. I know it's a long intro, but it's kind of tough when you're air dropping in. It's kind of tough when, when I have, I guess you could say I have an agenda when I want to convince you for your joy that committing to God is worth your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. It's worth your days, your hours, your minutes, your seconds, because he loves you. He cares for you, and he calls you out of death into life. So we're going to use two questions to look at our text this evening. The first is, what is commitment to God? That's what we're going to try to seek to answer. And the next is, how do we grow in commitment 
to God. And so let's look at it. What is commitment to God? Like Nathan mentioned last week, it's really tough to airdrop into the middle of a book like Romans. Paul's been laboring to help both Jews and Gentiles see the amazing wisdom of God in bringing one Savior to save all people. Okay, so that, that was incredible to both the Jews and the Gentiles, this reality that God in one fell swoop, in one perfect sacrifice, brought life and death to any, not life and death, life and everything, salvation to anyone who would believe in the person Jesus Christ. It was incredible. So Paul spends this whole half of this book describing that reality, helping people understand how they can be unified under the same Savior, how some being grafted out means that some are being grafted in, that there's a day when Jesus will come back and save us all. And at the end of, of, of all of that, he, in Romans 12, 1, he makes an appeal after hearing all about the gospel, how it applies to the Jews, to the Gentiles, to everybody, how it unites us, how it gives us life. He says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is was his appeal at the end of all that. So simply to answer our question this evening, the first question, commitment to God, is worship. Okay, that's, that, that's pretty simple. Uh, it's right here in the text. It's what we know to be true. I think Paul could have just said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, therefore, worship God. Worship Him. But he knew that the group of people he was talking to had their own ideas of what worship was. Okay, so when the Jews thought of worship, they thought of a law, they thought of a place, they thought of a temple, they thought of a book, maybe Leviticus, they thought of all these things that God had given them to follow. They thought of the law. For the Gentiles, it was focused on temples, cult worship, sacrifices, eating sacrificed meat, and different things like that. So Paul knew that an appeal to just be a worshiper, just worship God, would not have been a helpful appeal. He needed to be more specific, he needed to be more informative. In a way, I think he needed to shock his people, like Jesus shocked his people. He needed, to, he needed to give them like some information that would help them begin the transformation of their mind. Christ, Christian worship was to be distinct, unique, different, unlike any other worship the world had ever known. So Paul calls his hearers to be a living sacrifice. Okay, a living sacrifice. Let's, think about it for a second. Think about what a sacrifice is. One time, done. Okay, think about what living is every second, every moment, every day. Okay, now put those things together. A living sacrifice, it's shocking today, but I know it must have been shocking for the Jews and the Gentiles because they had an idea, both had an idea about what sacrifice was, but a living sacrifice, no matter where you were born, no matter where this radical idea, no doubt would have been confusing. And I'm, I'm sure Christ was, you know, the first to ever, I don't know, do anything about this. Because if you realize, he is the original living sacrifice. He's alive. He's not dead. He was laid down. He was buried in the grave. And three days later, he rose again. And he's alive now, sitting at the right hand of the Father, advocating for you. He is still currently teaching us and showing us what it means to be a living sacrifice. And that's what we're called into Paul explained it a little bit, like, this, why it's so confusing that someone like that would die for us. He says in Romans 5, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus has gone before us in all of these things. 
He has shown us what true love is, what true sacrifice is, what true worship is, what true sac- uh, a resurrected, ongoing, eternal life is. We're called to join him in his resolute, eternal devotion to the Father, to the things of, his God, of God, to the will of God in all things that he is going to bring about, like we sang about. One day these thorns will be gone. It's impossible, however. That's what's so perplexing about this idea. We can't do that. Okay, so I I hope, as I encourage you to consider being a living sacrifice, I hope it was both encouraging and discouraging. Encouraging because you know that's where your life is, Christian. You know that's where your joy is. You know that's what the Bible is calling you, but discouraging because you have not been able to do it. You cannot do it. Paul's appeal is again dependent on God and his mercy on God and his work. So we can't leave Nathan's sermon. We can't leave, okay, God did that, past tense, good, it's up to me now. No, everything that that Paul commands us and encourages us to do in this passage is still dependent on God's mercy. The word mercy literally means his compassionate pity. On God's compassionate pity, we're called to lean and display the power of the crucifixion of his son. We are dependent on him without the work of Jesus we would, not only, we would not be holy and acceptable because that's the second clause, right? Be holy and acceptable. You can't. It seems impossible, but this is what biblical commitment looks like. This is what biblical commitment looks like. It looks like losing everything in faith, knowing that you will gain everything in faith. It looks like laying oneself down in faith, knowing that God will exalt you in faith. It looks like sacrificing oneself, knowing that the worship of God is why, you're re, why you were created in the first place and why you have been recreated in Jesus. It's what God is committed to. It's for the sake of his glory and your joy. And if God is committed to this, think about this. If God is committed to his glory, if he is committed to the joy and sanctification of his people, how much more should we the benefactors of his self-sacrifice be committed to those things ourselves, forsaking our attachments to the world, being transformed into people who live and love with the mind of God. It sounds lofty, but it's the biblical response. This is what commitment to God looks like. He gave his life, Christian, and in response to such a beautiful act of love, we give our life. Not so that we can be saved or stay saved, but because we are saved. Not so we can pay him back, but because the price is paid. Not so we can maintain some sort of righteousness, but because your righteousness is kept and held forever in eternity because of the work that Jesus has accomplished on your path. You're free to follow him. You've been freed up by the gospel to give your whole life to him. Commitment to God is moment by moment, self-sacrificial awareness that is dependent on the mercy of God, made holy and acceptable by the blood of Christ, and it produces true worship in light of what Christ has done. That's a, that's a big, fat statement. I'm going to say it again. I, I guess I could say this might take away Nathan's was so much easier, but commitment to God is moment by moment, self-sacrificial awareness, mind that is dependent on the mercy of God, may holy and acceptable by the blood of Christ, which produces true worship in light of what Christ has done. There's nothing passive about the Christian life because there's nothing passive about being a living sacrifice. If a sacrifice is meant to be killed in order to please God, a living sacrifice must have its aim moment by moment, death to self. 
death to the love of this world, death to laziness and selfishness. It's an act of worship that has no finish line. Don't be discouraged, brother or sister. <laughs> when we think we've laid it down, all we like laid it all down. When you think you're about to plateau, my life is a parable for this. When you think you're like, oh gosh, it's been a good year, and I, I finally feel like I'm connecting with the Father. It's sweet because the Holy Spirit is glad to point out areas of our lives that we keep held back from God. He loves us too much to let us play around in the mud and the sin and the muck of this world. We keep for ourselves backup plans. Isn't that dangerous? Like the Christian phobo is a deadly place to be. Fear of a better offer, fear of a better uh, satisfaction, fear of a better joy. It kills our joy. It kills our devotion. It kills our faith. When we allow thoughts of satisfaction outside of Christ to linger in our hearts and minds, we invite death and destruction into areas that Christ has promised to bring life and healing and joy. I know you don't want to hear this, but many of us are entering middle age. I say that to some of you that I meet with for coffee, and you just go, oh, what do you mean? Oh, I'm like, how long do you think you're going to live? I used to tell Michelle, I'd be like, I'm having a quarter-life crisis, and she'd just be like, okay, let's do some simple math, Kyle. You're past that. If you have a quarter-life crisis now, you're going to live till you're 140 or whatever. And so we're all entering that age, and it's funny because you hear about midlife crises, and you think, oh, that's never going to be me. I'm never going to be the sports car guy. I'm never going to be that person that just goes off the deep end. That's, that's so untrue. Okay? And like what we are committing to, what we are living and pursuing is indicative of what we're fearing. And right now, a lot of us are fearing that I'm not who I thought I'd be. I'm not where I thought I'd be. I'm not the dad I thought I'd be. I'm not the mom I thought I'd be. I'm not the friend I thought I'd be. I'm not the Christian I thought I'd be. And what is the worldly response to that? Miatas. We go out and buy red Miatas and we drive around until somehow we snap out of it. Or divorce at this stage is high. We think there's got to be a change. There's got to be something. I, I, man, I'm wasting my life. Things are not going how I thought they would be. We rethink everything. We fear everything. We buy everything. We seek to gain control on how we are feeling through buying stuff, switching jobs, divorcing our spouses, and so on. We're not committed. We're not fearing the right things. We're not laying ourselves down as living sacrifices. So our hearts and minds go to so many different places. Again, this, is a, this sermon is a, this is me. I'm freaking out, everybody. My cholesterol is through the roof, okay? I'm like, well, how have I gotten here? How old am I? Right? And like, here's the, here's the sad thing. I seek to move things around. I seek to bargain with the world and figure out how can I make this life my best life? How can I find in this life what I'm looking for when I should be thinking, how can I commit more fully and intimately to God? How can I put sin to death and these evil things in my life that I might have joy fully through my 40s, through my 50s, through my 60s, through feeling old, through decay, and through eternity? Because my life is eternal, and that eternal life is now. It doesn't ever start, really. Like, Nathan, when he said that God's love never began for you, I was just like, what? I took a week to just consider that. That was tough to think through. But it hasn't begun because God never began. Before he laid the foundations of the world, he knows you, and he loved you, and he predestined you, is what the word says. And that's what we're living right now. We're living in our eternal life. How are we supposed to respond to a season like this? Again, it's laying ourselves down by taking our minds off of the flesh and committing to God. 
It's a matter of life and death. I know it doesn't sound like that. We don't want it to be like that. We don't want the scripture to be so black and white. But this is what Paul said earlier in in, in chapter 8. For to set the mind on flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit of life is peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Listen to that. The mind that is set on this world is opposing. It's hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life because Uh, the spirit is life because of righteousness. As the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life in your mortal bodies. Now, life now, not in eternity, not when you die and go to heaven, not when you get to the spiritual Wakanda that Nathan talked about last week, but your mortal body can experience the resurrected life of Jesus now through walking in the spirit, worshiping anything but God is death. More than that, worship anything but God puts you in opposition to him, making life miserable. And the Christian life impossible. It feels that way sometimes. So the question we should be asking ourselves constantly as we seek to be living sacrifices is what feels dead? What feels dead in my life? If I'm in the spirit and the spirit is life, why does this area feel dead? Why does this thing that I'm pursuing feel dead? Why does this emotional side of my heart feel dead? What in my life reeks of decay and rot? What areas of my heart and mind have no peace? Where's my flesh at war with God, a losing battle? Where's my mind set on the things of the world instead of the eternal goodness of God? And how can I lay that down? How can I sacrifice that part of my life that peace with God might reign? How can I worship? What shit sin should I be repenting of that Christ's work on the cross might be magnified and my mortal body might be filled with the eternal life-giving spirit of Jesus? Don't you want that? I do. I want that in my (laughs) mid-30s. I want that when I'm 40. I want that for my children. I want that for this church. We've got to root out the rotting death in our lives and in our body and commit to faith and repentance through the gospel that God has given us. The little point of application here is that if you're not reading the word of God, how are you supposed to know any of this? I mean, we have the spirit of God in us. We have the spirit living and dwelling in us. But if you don't pursue him through what he said about himself, if you don't pursue his word on a daily basis, I'm not saying like you have to go on a treasure hunt and every morning has to be this amazing thing and you have to have the coffee and you have to date Jesus. I'm saying, are you seeking to know God according to what he said about himself? Is that patterned in your life? Does that actually set the rhythm of your life? If not, then you shouldn't expect to feel life. And I know that's kind of harsh. Like, I don't, I, don't, I don't want it. Like I said, this is a black and white sermon, and there's plenty of gray and nuance. And that's why our, our commitment to one another, which is what Rabo is going to be preaching on, is so important that we rub up against each other, that we help each other discern these things, see sin, see the areas that we're failing in, and grow. But we need to know God according to his word. What sin should I be repenting of? What th- how do we know these things if we don't read God's word? I need to be clear here. Unless I'm, like, some of you are discouraged. I don't want to make it seem like I think that every difficult thing in our life, that every difficult season is a result of direct personal sin. 
Because that's not always true. Many of you are suffering now because of difficult circumstances in your life. And you should not be asking, what sin should I be repenting of so this feeling of death might be removed? That's not the right response. We can't control all the different things. Sometimes the sin of the world, the sin that is just the brokenness and death in this life, it enters our lives. And this is another reason why Rabo's sermon next week is so important. God's people should be committed to each other and helping each other, walking with each other. We need to help each other discern and call each other away from despair into the peace of God. But I'm going to share this from a place of genuine experience from from my own life because I'm not going to get specific but I just want to say here's a warning to my brothers and sisters who are suffering who do have difficult things going on in their life and I pray it's heard with love and I'm giving it uh, with love but personal sin might not be what has caused your suffering but if you're not careful personal sin can prolong it I don't know if that makes sense I don't know if that resonates with some of you but God loves you He deserves your worship for what he has done in Jesus. He has promised to use this difficult season, this difficult life for your good. So don't allow your difficulty to slip into bitterness. Don't let it slip into despair. Allow your difficulty to remind you of your Savior who suffered as well, who had pity on you and made a way for you to be counted as holy and acceptable before God, like we're in our verse this evening. Lean into the life of Christ. Lean in to the life of his spirit. Lean in to the life of his body. We're called and commanded to bear your burdens with you. And it's a joy to lay ourselves down as a living sacrifice on your behalf that we might all put our flesh to death and allow the peace of the spirit to dwell in us richly. Okay, so that being said, let's talk about worship. When you hear the word worship, what comes to mind? Okay, so what we've been discussing tonight is it a living moment-by-moment, self-sacrificing devotion to God that Romans 12 talks about, or is it something else? Is it maybe a a pursuit of knowing God, knowing, knowing His mind? Is it a pursuit of knowing His will, delighting in His presence, and responding to His goodness? Is it self-sacrificial praise? Because I think that's what biblical worship is, what's being described here. For the Gentiles, when when they heard that, it was cult worship, right? For, For the Jews, it was the law, but what is it for you? Okay, because we might need to do some changing, some transforming of our minds around the area of worship. Is it a trip to a building once a week? Is it singing songs? Is it moving overseas and doing the hardest living in the hardest places? Is it experiencing God in nature or in friendships or relationships? When you hear the word worship, what do you think of? It's important. It matters. For the Gentiles, like I said, it was cult worship. For us, it's so many things, but we can't be lulled to sleep here. God's word tells us what worship is. Okay, it says over and over again, lots of different ways. It's abiding in Christ. It's praying without ceasing. It's loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's filling the earth with his glory. It's slaying sin. The end of this chapter gives us a long list, and I'm going to read it because I think it's valuable for us as the body to hear. Let love be genuine. This is starting in verse 9. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight, repay no one evil for 
evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I often ask myself, Lord, what do you want from me? What is it, Lord? Like, that's a pretty good list. It's not like he's been unclear with us. It's not like he's just up there just saying, I hope you could just figure it out. He has shown us in his son. He has given us his word. His spirit lives in us, and he's calling us out of this world into life in Christ. Let's not be confused. Let's not be confused. If we're confused, let's, let's see that as an area that maybe is dead in our lives. We need to go to God's word, God's people, and figure out and discern how we might honor him and glorify him. It's explaining a life, these verses that's laid down on the altar of worship, a life that's devoted to the heart and mind of God. The Christian life should not feel mysterious in terms of what we're supposed to do We should devote ourselves to, trust me, if you commit to worshiping God in the way that Paul commanded us just above, you have a whole lifetime in this world, in your mortal body. You have a whole lifetime of ways to worship. But we don't. That's why we gather every week, right? We didn't just get saved and and cruise. We don't do these things. It's remarkable. We're constantly oscillating between a mind that is set on the flesh and one that is set on the spirit. Why is that so? That brings me to my second and final question of the night. How do we grow in commitment to God and God alone? I'm going to try to be fast. God knows that wholehearted devotion is difficult for us. We see it in the Old Testament where lines are constantly being drawn. Are you going to follow me or are you going to follow the gods of this world? We just saw it in Joshua. When Joshua made a stand, my family, we're going to serve the Lord. Okay, against your idols. Jesus talks about it when he says you can't serve two masters. He talks about it in Revelation. He's talking about the church in Laodicea saying, I don't want lukewarm. I wish you were either hot or cold. I wish you would pursue me with your whole heart. I don't want this half in, half out mindset. One foot committed to the world, one foot committed to God. Paul's saying it in Romans as well, as we've already gone over it, to set on the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. There's no middle ground. And that's what, I mean, the nuance is we work together in faith, trying to put things things. Uh, to death in our lives. We, we need each other to discern when we're off. We need the word, the scriptures, the Holy Spirit. But it's like life is like kayaking upstream. Progress can be made, but it has to be constant. You have to keep paddling. The moment you lift the paddle out of the water is the moment you lose the distance you have covered. Right? And you don't notice it. I don't know if you've ever done that, but you just, you'll just look up and you'll be like a mile downstream. And that's what conformity to the world is like. It, it's invisible. That's what makes it so tricky for Christians, right? It's so easy to look just like the world because the world accepts it. The world loves it. And that's why we're commanded, don't be conformed to it. If you conform to it, you'll live in death. How do we worship? How do we fight conformity in a world and we allow our minds to be transformed into the mind of God? How do we do that? Let's, let's look at it. We have to actively be fighting or we'll look up and our lives will look no different than the lives of those around us what we say, what we do, what we watch, what we spend our money on, how we raise our kids, who we date, how we obey our parents, kiddos, how we participate in the life of this church. Middle ground between comforting, conforming to the world and being transformed is the worst place for a Christian to try to live. I've tried it. I'm like, again, my life is, is the parable for this sermon. If you're trying to live one in 
and one out, trying to live, getting your joy from the world, getting your joy from God, it's going to exhaust you. It's going to wear you out. And God designed it that way. Why are we so resistant to letting go of this life? Because we don't believe Jesus when he says things like this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man? What will it profit you if you gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Why do we hold on to the world? Because we're afraid that God is not who he says he is. Okay, so we conform, we get comfort lulled to sleep by the joys and the temporary satisfaction of this world. We're convinced that the death we are holding on to is really life and that life that God offers is really death. We're no better than our first parents, Adam and Eve, as they reached for autonomy and took hold of slavery and death instead. We're fearing the wrong thing. We're afraid we won't get what our fleshly hearts want when we should be fearing missing out on the life and peace afforded to us by the death of Jesus that's offered to us today. God's not, just hear this, God's not holding anything back from you. He's not. He's not in any way thinking, if you would, if you would just do this or that, he wants to give you fullness of joy, fullness of life. Now, today, he's not keeping anything from you. If, it, if, if it's maximum joy, maximum peace, maximum anything that is good, he wants to give it to you. He's withheld nothing. And he deserves your wholehearted worship, your wholehearted devotion. I hope you believe that. If you believe it, then don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Unlike conformity, transformation is not invisible. Okay, so, so if, you think, if you hear the word transformation, you should think of the Mount of Transfiguration. This word is only used four times in the New Testament. Okay, so it's twice in Mark and Matthew where it describes Jesus being transfigured in front of the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration where, where Christ, and I don't want to say his deity is removed, that's not true, but his, like he is revealed for being holy and pure and the disciples are like, let's build a tabernacle, let's stay here, that was amazing, I want to experience that. So that's the, that, that's the places, that's two of the usages. The other two usages are here in our passage in Romans, and again in Corinthians that we're going to look at, talking about you being transformed into that same image, the same process happening to you, you being made holy, you being made pure, you walking in newness of life. For a moment, the majesty of Jesus was revealed, and that moment is in you as well. It's happening in you. If you are in Christ, your sin is washed away. You've been made white as snow, and you're being transformed. One day, this body of death will be removed and we will see Jesus and we will be like Jesus. This is how Paul puts it when he describes it to the Corinthians. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. He's talking about the Jews. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. That's the, that's the second and the only other usage talking about us, we're being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another. The veil has been removed from our face and we have unhindered access through Jesus to God. It's incredible. And this is what we're committing to. In case we're responding, a life that is given over to what God has done, his goodness, his kindness. I don't think I've said anything this evening about God that should make you hesitant to commit to him. Okay, and I don't want, I know there's two sides of this. We can go into legalism, 
We can be really fearful that our lives are overcome. Like, like if, I, if I'm not careful, if I'm not careful, I'm going to lose this. Or we can go into just lazy living. Like not pursuing the joy of Christ, not pursuing holiness, not, pers- not uh, intentionally putting to death conformity and then moving towards the renewal of our minds. Those are both dangerous places, but we're called. We're called by God to commit to him heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're promised that our joy is there. And so as we consider as a church, as we come together thinking through what does it mean to be committed, these are the things that we want you as your pastors, just as your fellow church mates to understand that God is committed to you, that he loves you and cares for you. And the only appropriate response to that is a life that is given over to him. And just hear me say, he won't let you down. There is no joy being withheld. There is no limit to his goodness and kindness towards you in his son if you would turn and commit to him. And I just, I'm so thankful to be doing that with you. I'm so thankful that next week that's what Rabo is going to be talking about, how we do that together, how we come under um, God's authority and how we commit to him and how we do that in light of this specific body, this specific group of people that he has called us to worship with. Would you please pray with me? Father, we love you, and we praise you, and we thank you that you have not left us uh, to be confused about what it means to be uh, a follower of you, Father. We're so thankful that in your kindness and in your goodness, you have called us to know you, and you have provided a way for us to know you. You have called us away from sin and death in this life, conformity to this world, and you have promised to transform us. It's all your work. God, but our our life, our response, our willingness to allow you to transform us is what you ask for. You ask for our hearts. God, I pray that you would help us to be a committed people, people who are committed to your glory, to your worship, to your praise, people who are committed to putting sin to death, people who are committed to allowing Jesus to be resurrected in us, that this world might see your goodness and might turn and worship you, that we might see your goodness and experience your joy and your peace, the life that you've offered us in the gospel. God, we ask that you would help us. We ask that you would show us what it means to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. We're so thankful for the blood of Jesus, which makes us holy and acceptable. We're so thankful for the spirit, which informs and empowers all of these things. God, we're so thankful for your love and kindness towards us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.